Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine, and today on our show, isolation and the toll it's taking on all of us. My father doesn't get to hold her hand. I don't get to hold her hand. Nobody's there. And she's scared, and she's all alone. I felt a lot of guilt. I much prefer real school because I'm much more active at real school. Home school, I just sit on the couch and say, (laughs) Stories of coping and resilience. If adverse situations beat you down, there wouldn't be an African-American in this country. You survive. You do what you have to do to survive. Plus, celebrating the sounds of an L.A. neighborhood with song. So much of the narrative that's been told about Boyle Heights is that, oh, it's just a community of poor people and there's gangs there. And you put the narrative in the hands of artists, they tell beautiful stories. They tell powerful stories of deep connection, deep history, and also resilience. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Right now, with the coronavirus raging across the state, so many of us are worried about our elderly loved ones. For tens of thousands of California families, assisted living facilities once seemed like a safer option than leaving an aging parent at home. But today, many of those facilities have become COVID hotspots. So making decisions about how to care for our elders has gotten more stressful than ever. We're going to start our show today with a story about a man from Oakland who had to make that decision about his mom. We can't use his last name because he lives abroad and there are some sensitive issues around his work visa. Reporter Brett Simpson brings us his story about navigating the pandemic world of senior care and a growing industry of caregivers who come to you. One night in August, Johnny was at home with his family when his phone rang. I got the call. I was with my wife and my stepdaughter and my newborn daughter. It was the director of his mother's assisted living center in Oakland with news he had dreaded for months. His mother tested positive for the coronavirus. The director said that she was asymptomatic, but she hadn't eaten in days. I knew it was a big deal that she hadn't been eating. At that point, I lost all trust in the information they were giving me. I had to come back. Johnny lives in Europe, halfway across the world from his mother. Once he left, he didn't know if he'd be allowed back because of his visa. The flight to Oakland took 12 grueling hours. 30 minutes after landing, he was at his mom's bedside. She looked like she was in pain. 
her kidneys weren't working properly. You know, she had bed sores. It was clear that she needed medical help to survive. Johnny rode with her in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. When she went in alone, he wasn't sure he'd ever see her again. My father doesn't get to hold her hand. I don't get to hold her hand. Nobody's there. And she's scared. And she's all alone. I felt a lot of guilt. Because Johnny put her in that facility in the first place. Emotionally, it was one of the most difficult decisions because my parents had not been separated for over 50 years. Before April of 2019, Johnny's parents had lived together in Oakland for decades. But they're both in their 80s, and his mother has advanced dementia. By early last year, she couldn't walk anymore. It was clear to Johnny that his dad couldn't care for her on his own. Johnny suggested moving her to a home, but his dad resisted. He wasn't physically able to provide the care for her. Emotionally, he wasn't ready to be separated from her. Johnny insisted. He found a memory care home nearby designed for dementia patients. His mom would be living an active social life and getting round-the-clock care. Johnny felt confident in his choice. Still, the day they dropped her off, his father was distraught. It was heart-wrenching. To him, it was as if my mom was dying. Johnny's debate with his father isn't unique. To keep an aging parent home or move them out for better care? That debate has been raging in families for decades. But today, the stakes are higher than ever. Assisted living homes have become virus hotspots, with nearly 450 outbreaks statewide so far. Over 120,000 aging Californians currently live in care homes. For their families, an already tough decision could turn deadly. But there's another option. I go to the tiny downtown Oakland office of HomeWatch Caregivers, an agency that sends caregivers to seniors in their own homes. Lately, the phone has been ringing off the hook. HomeWatch Caregivers, this is Leah. Leah Bloom runs HomeWatch with her husband, Ben, and Muglet. Believe it or not, he's 12. He's an elder dog. Bookshelves line the walls with titles like The Beginner's Guide to the End. Bloom says she sees aging couples like Johnny's parents all the time. And she agrees that caregiving when you're 80 doesn't work. It's really dangerous to be an elder yourself caring for elders. But to Bloom, assisted living doesn't require a facility. Her caregivers help with everything from moving around and eating to driving and companionship. Basically, we're eyes and ears for the family who may worry about their loved ones when they can't be there. There are thousands of home care agencies in the state. Bloom says the industry is booming. But like assisted living, home care isn't cheap, unless you have a special kind of insurance that covers it. Home care is still not considered a medical necessity. Even though there is study after study that shows that after a hospital discharge, you're much less likely to return to the hospital again if you have the proper home care. Back in the hospital, Johnny's mother was one of the lucky ones. She began to recover. To come back from where she was the day that I got back, I never would have guessed. It's nothing short of a blessing. There was no way they were sending her back to the home. Then Johnny heard about Bloom and Home Watch. Today, caregivers work with his mother around the clock. 
back in the apartment she shares with his dad. He says his dad doesn't have to worry about the tough job of taking care of his wife. And instead, he says, they can focus on the moments they have left together. It's him reconnecting with her. It's kind of like getting reacquainted. For The California Report, I'm Brett Simpson in Oakland. That story really hits home for me. That guilt about sending an elder to a home where they're at risk. My grandmother-in-law is 97, and I'm really close to her. And she's in a nursing facility in the Central Valley where there's been a COVID outbreak. She recently tested positive, and she's so isolated. Say hi to Bob. Hi, Bob. But we are trying to stay connected. My kids are learning to play piano, and they've been giving her concerts over FaceTime. Grandma Yuriko is really tough. At 97, she hasn't shown any symptoms, even though she's tested positive for COVID. And this whole time, I've just been struck by how resilient and matter-of-fact she is. She reminds me of the women we're about to meet in this next story, from KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg. When Sukari Addison needs to clear her mind, she sits in the garden at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. She says the peaceful environment helps her accept our new reality. We're in really a change, a big change now. But I've been through changes before, a lot of them as an African-American. Addison is 85 and plagued by congestive heart failure and high blood pressure, both of which are risk factors for COVID. Though she says she's not living in fear. When you get 85 years old, you know you got a foot on the banana peel. On a hot summer night in August, she tried not to panic when she started feeling sick. I just threw myself on the bed and there I stayed for 12 hours. Within days, she tested positive for COVID and landed in the hospital with pneumonia. Exhaustion consumed her. She says the hardest part was the rule against visitors, but... The doctors and the nurses was just over and beyond. And I think that got me through a lot. After two dire weeks, her physician sent her home to recover. Fortunately, Medicare covered her hospital bills. Her social security check covers the rest each month. She's still moving slowly and spends most days alone in the room she rents near Union Square. But she says she's not lonely. Her devices keep her connected. I learn so much because of technology. All I have to do is turn on my iPhone, on my iPad, on my computer. And there's a new subject for me to learn. Addison often shares what she's learned with her six great-grandchildren on the East Coast over FaceTime. Make ugly faces and have fun together. She has a sweetheart who dines with her occasionally. They make dinner in her Instant Pot. And she chats with folks on the street, always behind a mask. I like to meet new people. I really like people. When the pandemic ends, she looks forward to returning to her career. I'm a professional volunteer. Though not all seniors are riding out the storm. One in four older adults says they're anxious or depressed. That rate has more than doubled during the pandemic. The isolation is especially challenging in nursing homes where pandemic rules prevent visitors. Facility staff say some patients are refusing to eat 
or crying alone in their rooms for long stretches. Someone like Diane Evans could have been a prime candidate for pandemic distress. The 74-year-old lives alone and struggles with severe clinical depression. There have been many long periods of my life that I had been isolated. And it was like self-isolation, dealing with the depression. I'll be depressed and stay in for a long time, and then suddenly I'll go out. Evans was on the upswing right before the pandemic hit. She was exercising, enjoying church, and singing in a choir. And recently I found the last two bulletins for March 2nd. After that, that's it. That was the last time I was able to go to church. All kind of things ended. Like classes at the senior center where she lives in the Tenderloin. Yet surprisingly, Evans says she isn't struggling more than usual right now. What we're learning from emerging studies is that older generations are handling the pandemic better than younger generations. If adverse situations beat you down, there wouldn't be an African-American in this country. You survive. You do what you have to do to survive. Preventing financial stress is important to Evans, so she makes a point of living simply. The city's social safety net has allowed her to live on around $1,000 a month by supplementing her housing, health care, and food needs. The biggest expense is laundry. She keeps in close contact with friends and family. I learned how to text. <laughs> she Zooms regularly with her daughter in Chicago. She listens to the news on the radio or streams Hulu Live. She flips between MSNBC, Fox, and CNN. I save things on the news app in the cloud. She can't wait to get back to community organizing. I miss it horribly. We, we were involved in everything, everything. She says she'd love to join the protests calling for racial equity. But until the pandemic ends, she's lying low. I want to be alive at the end of this. On hard days, she reminds herself, And this too shall pass. It's wisdom she shares over FaceTime with her grandchildren. That's KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg. As she's been covering isolation during the pandemic, she's also been talking to kids who haven't attended school in person since March. She brings us another story, and we just want to caution you, this story covers some sensitive issues related to kids and depression. Before the lockdown, Kenley Gupta spent hours sketching. This is a drawing I did that took a pretty long time. The eight-year-old points to a woman's face. The eye was actually pretty hard, the pupil and the iris. But when Kenley's public elementary school in Oakland closed last spring, she stopped drawing. I was really shocked. I was really sad. I couldn't see my friends. She's a social butterfly and a good student, but her spirit flattened when classes went online. Kenley spent much of her day glued to her hot pink iPad gaming. She also ate a lot. There was a kind of almost compulsive snacking, actually, that I had never seen before. That's Jay Gupta, Kenley's dad. He says she often crumpled up into a ball and hid under her blankie, clutching her favorite stuffed animal named Green Guy. Green Guy has his own um, voice, and she actually just, if she talked at all, would talk in that mode. But mostly, she didn't talk. They're silent storms. She'll just stop communicating. It was actually very difficult to, to motivate her. At some point, I, I gave up. Jay was overwhelmed. He's a single dad who lost his wife when Kenley was a toddler. 
During that dark time, Kenley developed mutism, a childhood anxiety disorder where kids are unable to speak. She may have been reliving in, in whatever way uh, that loss. Jay was also trying to juggle his job as a professor and homeschool Kinley's twin brother, Anakin. Even though his sister was suffering, Anakin seemed to be doing okay, though he also despises online classes. I much prefer real school because I'm much more active at real school. Homeschool, I just sit on the couch and say, bleh. <laughs> the spry eight-year-old longed to play basketball with friends during recess. I'm an energy boy, so I like getting out a lot. Jay was relieved Anakin didn't fall apart, though he later learned Anakin wasn't keeping up with schoolwork. Last spring was rough on the family. I really felt like I was out at sea, and you know, people I talked to had very little you know, advice to offer you know, about what to do. Closing campuses not only isolate students from teachers, but also support systems like counselors. Santoy Trotter is a psychotherapist at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital in Oakland. We do see high levels of anxiety, high levels of depression. We have had, you know, definitely increased number of suicide attempts and suicide behaviors. Her clinic recorded more youth suicide attempts in the first four weeks of the pandemic than they'd had in the previous four years, mostly driven by despair, giving up of hope. Why does it matter? There's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to connect with. There's this, like, deflatedness. Even before the virus hit, one in six children suffered from a mental health disorder. The rate is even higher for those living below the poverty line. And the harm unfolding now could imprint kids down the line. Studies show social isolation increases the risk of depression, which can show up nine years later in children. Trotter advises parents to check in with their young ones often, listen closely, set routines, and don't forget self-care. Give yourself as much permission as possible, right, to rest, to reset, to restore. You know, just want caregivers to, and parents to hear that. The Gupta family turned a corner over the summer. An outdoor camp inspired Kenley to come back to life. It is notable that her mood, it just went 180. She's a different person. The shift paved the way for a soft landing this fall when they returned to distance learning. An art therapist recently inspired Kenley to start drawing again. She flips open her pad to a recent sketch. Like this is the alien hand. The trampoline in the backyard also helps. Sometimes the twins even do their math flashcards jumping up and down. Kenley still has silent storms, but her dad is finding new ways to help her cope. If someone in the family sits next to her during Zoom classes, she pays closer attention. Just this presence seems to anchor her. For The California Report, I'm Leslie McClurg. The California Report has been on the air for 25 years, and we're celebrating with a special live stream event on December 8th. We'll feature California stories and musical performances, along with visits from beloved alums of our show, like NPR's Tamara Keith and KQED's Scott Schaefer. We also want to see your state through your eyes. Post your photos of what the Golden State means to you on Instagram or Twitter using the hashtag TheCaliforniaReport. 
More information about the event at kqed.org events. Take a look around and tell me what you see. Tacos stands in Yiddish shops, running up and down the street. A booming social clubs, bathhouses, shops side by side. A thriving immigrant sanctuary. That's a song from a new project called Sounds of California. It's part of a multi-year effort to collect music and cultural expression from across the state. It's spearheaded by the Alliance for California Traditional Arts, in conjunction with the Smithsonian. As part of the project, they commissioned 10 original songs from local artists about Boyle Heights, a neighborhood that's rapidly gentrifying east of downtown L.A. Musician Quetzal Flores has been helping to curate the project. Tell us, Quetzal, why a focus on Boyle Heights? Boyle Heights is a community of immigrants. Since its inception, you had these communities that literally could not live anywhere else and had to live in Boyle Heights or Compton or other parts of, of the city that were designated for that through redlining. So when we look at what's happening in Boyle Heights and how the economic powers within the city of Los Angeles are positioning themselves to gentrify Boyle Heights, to displace people, to prey on economic opportunity in a place that, that has been the sanctuary. You know, there's this history of defiance and resistance to power, to the oppressive tactics of capitalism, of patriarchy and white supremacy. These are songs where you're commissioning work by artists from the community about their community. I'm thinking about the song by Edica Organista called Their Landing. Details, even really specific street corners in Boyle Heights, specific establishments, but it, it also chronicles a, a migration story from Tijuana to Boyle Heights. Edika's story is the story of many people that live in Boyle Heights right now, and so she really was able to tell her personal story, the story of her family, the story of her parents arriving from Tijuana, being homeless in the city, and looking for a place and finding home in Boyle Heights. So much of the narrative that's been told about Boyle Heights is that, oh, it's just a community of poor people and there's gangs there and bad schools. And when we're able to control that narrative and tell our own narrative, and you put the narrative in the hands of artists, they tell beautiful stories. They tell powerful stories of deep connection, deep history, and also uh, resilience. There's a great story that I was told by a friend where a Eastern European woman would walk by my friend's house every day. One day she stopped and she said, hey, little girl, come here. What is that smell? I pass by your house every day and that smell, it just reels me in. She says, oh, my mom's making tortillas. So she brought her a tortilla with some butter on it. The woman was like, 
This is incredible. Can we exchange? I make sour cream. I will bring you a, a batch of sour cream every week and you give me tortillas and we'll exchange. And these two women became best friends and comadres and, and you know, were connected for the rest of their lives. Boyle Heights is a place of bridges. Stories crossing, stories never end. Well, there's a song in this collection that captures some of that cross-cultural connection between communities from Nobuko Miyamoto. So Nobuko is an 80-year-old Japanese-American. When she was a very young girl, she and her family were incarcerated during the incarceration of Japanese-Americans by the U.S. government. And so coming out of camp, they landed in Boyle Heights. Four years they get. Us. And now we're back to start from zero. Mom's happy sewing curtains, stitching up a home. Seeing her mother restitch their lives back together, healing from the trauma of, of being forcibly removed and incarcerated. Nobuko was a, a trained dancer who landed in Broadway and did many musicals and uh, landed a part also in West Side Story. She is an elder, a community elder, and she holds a very important perspective, the cross-generational dialogue within these compositions. That was going to be key, right? So we have someone like Angelica Matas, who's in her early 20s. That's a pretty broad uh, uh, perspective there. From all over the world come to see well, let's talk about Angelica Mata's song, Mariachi Plaza. It's, it's one of the songs in this collection that's bilingual, both in English and Spanish. And it also blends different genres of music. In lovely so Angelica is the child of two prominent mariachis in Los Angeles. She can go from this very sort of lush, ballad-like introduction and then into this mariachi piece that has that fervor and that intensity and that pride. Her tradition, her main tradition is mariachi music, but she's a lover of all kinds of music. She loves Brazilian music, she loves jazz. And then lyrically, you know, she loves her neighborhood. And oftentimes what happens in the process of gentrifying a community, there's an erasure of culture and the people to really center the culture that exists now and the people is a way of reaffirming our existence. It's the mirror that people can look at and say to themselves, I matter, I have value, and my value is not determined by how much money I make, but instead all of the deep, deep connections that I have to people in this neighborhood and the sounds that remind me that I belong here. Quetzal Flores from the Alliance for California Traditional Arts. The Sounds of California Project will launch a public archive in the spring 
where you can hear sounds from many vibrant communities across the state. Meanwhile, you can check out the songs from Boyle Heights. We've got a link at our website, californiareport.org. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Our director is Amanda Font. And our technical producer is Seal Muller, with additional engineering from Katie McMurrin. Our team also includes Asala Sanapur, Julia McAvoy, and Ariella Markowitz. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget to mark down our virtual live event celebrating the California Report's 25th birthday on December 8th. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.